0: Guys, Christopher Stale here back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall. And guys, I'm excited for this one because I, you guys who watch the show, you know that I love diving behind the scenes of films and, and television that we are all familiar with. Finding out the inner workings of things that, that you see on screen and you just t- kind of take advantage of or, or take for granted. This one is extra special because looking at the list that this man has worked on, he's pretty much written all of our childhoods everything you can think of that you love star trek star wars back to the future jaws the list goes indiana jones the list goes on this man had a hand in every single one of them it's very rare i get the chance to sit here awestruck uh in the fact that i'm basically talking to somebody who who essentially is a legend in in everything that has developed me as a person ladies and gentlemen mr kevin pike Kevin, how are you doing today?
1: Hello, and how are you, Christopher? It's a uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, uh, I look forward to answering your questions and treating your fans to some behind-the-scenes stories. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm flabbergasted just knowing all the things. Again, I don't want to go step-by-step step of everything you've been on, but I mean, you've been on everything from like blockbusters like Star Wars and Jaws to doing... Things for two and a half men on TV. I mean, it, it's just an incredible Bible, if you will, uh, of, of footage that you've worked on. Uh, first and foremost, of course, the big question is you worked, you worked in effects. I'm assuming it's practical effects?
1: Of course. Of we course. called it special effects uh, versus at that time it was optical effects. And then that became visual effects. And then sometimes we get called mechanical effects. And then there's all kinds of gyrations over the the time when, you know, early on they had blue screen and optical printers and rear screen process. And we did wind, rain, fire, snow, sleet, hail, dust, steam and explosions. And that was really a discipline that we focused on.
0: What got you into that? Like, uh, growing up, I obviously—I assume you—you were a film fan, fanatic, and everything. What got you into wanting to deal with with uh, special effects in that field?
1: That came by accident. I mean, when I was in high school, I was more on the creative side than on the sports side, so. I was in the audiovisual club and in the camera club. And we'd take pictures of the sports people for the yearbook. And um, I was drama club president for four years in high school and did some acting, won a trophy for my work and blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up on Martha's Vineyard in the summer, early summer of 1974. And the short story is, is that I was working as a busboy at a famous restaurant in Edgartown. And during the Easter weekend, this party came in and they were talking movies, all about movies, war stories, this and that. And they happened to be the scouting party, the the beginning crew to get started on the movie called Jaws. And when they left, the fellow left his valise, his bag under the table, and I returned it out to them in the parking lot. And he told me that uh, inside there were the storyboards to make the movie and... I said, are "You guys making a film?" And yeah, we are. And I said, well, "What's it about?" And it's about a shark that's going to eat your whole island. And it was probably about <laughs> in less than a week later. I was on the crew with the first group hired um, in April of 1974, working on Jaws.
0: I, I got to imagine, like just being in that world, especially, especially like like you said, you you kind of stumbled into Jaws when they told you they were doing this horror flick with this 25 foot great white shark monster shark especially in a time of 1974 1975 where special effects had had not seen anything like that before what went through your mind like this this is this is going to be like a terrible drive-in movie like what what did you think when you first approached the project of something like jaws
1: um i was looking for my paycheck Um, because I was starving and uh, finally I was making something that was decent. I made $3.50 an hour and when we got down to the barn where we're supposed to show up for work, there was the orca in there. So I knew it was a sea picture and I knew it was a story about a shark, but the size and the details and the story and all of that, I didn't know that. My job was to just kind of coordinate the construction crew and do the time cards and take care of the coffee breaks, sweep up, blueprints, purchase orders, that kind of stuff, go shopping and help the show get made. And then as it grew, you know, pretty soon, here come the sharks and we got to get working on painting. And I started working with people that did all the skins and the teeth and, you know, went through the whole six, seven months working on it and realized what it was becoming as we got more into it and I learned more about filmmaking and more about the story
0: God and obviously uh that, if correct me if I'm wrong here, that was kind of the gateway into really seeming to uh, build a work relationship with one Steven Spielberg because you are credited on a lot of Spielberg films is it something that he uh, just I, whenever he did a project he said I, I want Kevin on it
1: Um, In the beginning, I knew that he was happy to have me. I I know that he enjoyed the fact that I was involved with the crew persons on Jaws. The first day of shooting, I had to go out and touch up some paint when I got called to the set. And they were doing the scene with the crabs on the arm, and the discovery of the body parts. And I had to go touch up a piece of fence behind Roy Scheider's head and he called me there and I started doing my work and then it was okay thanks Kevin and Joe Alves the art director appreciated my work and then Ward Welton was there and uh, he thanks Kevin and then it was a joke everybody turned around and said thanks Kevin thanks Kevin Stephen said thanks Kevin so here it is the first shot of the movie and everybody knows who I am (laughs) <laughs> and, and, it, and it was just I was just some laborer working in the boathouse helping the painters and the art department and all of that and um so then I came to Hollywood on that call and started getting my days in the union and next thing you know um winter of 76 Stephen decided to make a movie called Close Encounters and then obviously the People that put him over on Jaws, Roy Arbor Gas became the supervisor of that movie. Joe Alves was a production designer again. And naturally, they asked me to come along and they had me work on the electronics. And I was involved building the sign that communicates with this spaceship. and. A lot of other things that we did on the movies for all the effects on it, and worked the whole show down in Mobile, Alabama, for about six months, and that too became pretty popular.
0: Yeah, so I'd, I'd say that's so. how it went. Now, yeah, as, as one, I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, as a, as a young guy, I mean, you're you're as you stated, you, you just started working. Uh, <sighs> hold on a second. Let's see what I mean about needing to edit um milk and diapers milk and diapers don't don't forget milk and diapers you're just starting in the in the field in the career uh and right off the bat you're on two there there's no other way of putting it two blockbuster films that have really become nowadays icons in the film industry i mean that's that's got to say something to you in, in its own right
1: um after jaws came out and we knew how successful it was going to be after we saw our screening at the studio. And it was the first one to go through the ceiling and become a $100 million gross film. Um, we knew we were on to something. And everybody that worked on Jaws had a very lucky career after that for the most part. Um, oh, well, I worked on Jaws. and Oh, you did? And it just became a, a door opener and... Uh, Everything happened better for all the people that worked on that show. When we went on Close Encounters, it's like, oh, you're, you're doing another Spielberg project. Okay, great. And th- that was an extremely popular film, running neck and neck with Star Wars. George Lucas, his friend, you know, they were kind of combating each other, trying to mm. make the better film. Um, and then you're you staying busy getting jobs to, in different TV shows at the studios, and all of a sudden, Joe Alves came through the shop and said, okay, we're starting to do Jaws 2. And he grabbed me and got me right on there again, working with Bob Maddy, and we ended up going to Pensacola, Florida. I was on location for 10 and a half months on that show. And there we are again, making another popular
0: movie. So that's how it went. When When you broke into the film industry, was it something, uh, the, the best way I could describe it, like last night I, I did an interview uh, with a, a gentleman who, who works indie films and stuff. He's also a, a radio personality and a podcaster. Uh, but he kind of fell into the profession. It was not something he actively went searching for. Is that basically, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's kind of how it was for you. It's not like you went to, to college or school uh, specifically in mind to, to work in film production correct? This is just something that kind of came about and, and you learned as you went? A- am I correct? I, about that?
1: I really wanted to go to school and study acting. I was a chosen at the Harvard Stage Company in between, and um, but my life took some changes, and I got on Jaws completely by accident by being in the right place at the right time, and I was glad it did because... I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And this was like mana from heaven and a stroke of good luck. And then that got me out to Hollywood. And there were times when I first got there that I couldn't get into union right away. Wasn't busy enough. And I made a living doing wallpapering and painting for commercials and little minor set shops and things like that. And then all of a sudden we got lucky again. And then, you know, so I realized early on that it's an up and down business. Sometimes it's quiet, there's no work, you got to look for work, you got to see what's happening, when it's going to happen, and sometimes it's, you know, it's by chance that it happens, and you have to have talent, drive, and luck, and any one of those will help you out.
0: And, of course, like most fields, I imagine, especially with the uh, resume that you have, uh, I imagine, just like in most fields, it's also uh, reputation, And I'm assuming working with Spielberg on on blockbuster films like Jaws and Close Encounters and then doing Jaws 2, that led you to, to episode six, Return of the Jedi. And, of course, that led you to Back to the Future and led you to, you know, Indiana Jones and led you to so many other different film franchises that most people probably nowadays would give their left arm. To be a part of but it was really it was it was your work ethic along with reputation is, would that be a correct assumption
1: i'm a hard worker and i always feel responsible that whatever the task is that it's important to get it done and, and get it done well right and in between those major shows i got tossed into the work pool at the studios working on tv shows And sometimes it's just a fireplace or it's a camera wet down for an outside shot or you're in the shop with all the other guys building breakaways. And I adapted well, I learned my craft. I got selected to go on shows to help the veteran special effects foreman is what we called them back then. And I learned a lot. And at Universal, it was quite busy. And I ended up being known as one of the guys, get Kevin to work with you on this one, and talent, driving luck. And I learned my craft well, and they put me on a little show that was a movie of the week with uh, Eve Arden and Heather Thomas, it was a spinoff of a show called BJ and the Bear. And that was my first show I supervised. It wasn't a lot on it, but that was it. And then right after that, um, it, I got a feature, a small show, um, was out of Paramount at the time, called Partners with Ryan O'Neill and John Hurt, directed by Jimmy Burroughs, who's well known for his work in sitcoms. Um, and, and I had my first feature under my belt and it just kept growing, kept growing. And the work kept coming and the calls kept coming and often I worked with all the fellows that I had worked with before. And it was just as happy to do that, be a foreman or take over a unit, you know, things like that. Roy Arbogast, who I worked seven shows with in the beginning of my career, I have a of gratitude for everything I learned from that man. Um, and not only how to build things or how to make things, but just the way the business worked. Um, and the painter on Jaws, Ward Wilton was one of the biggest uh, teachers in my career. Uh, secrets about the business and what you need to know along with learning all the techniques on how to paint, and paint well from marbleizing, wood graining, trompe l'oeil, that kind of stuff. Um, I just kept picking up skills along the way. And then uh, we went on Jedi after that. Roy was doing the American unit, working in concert with Kit West from England. And he said, we got another big ship, let's go. And we started building the Scout Walker. Here's another big monster we're making. And then down to the desert and he laid on the mud pit and built the Sarlacc pit and then back up to the redwoods, blown up the Ewoks. You know, great stuff. A lot of fun, a lot of work, a lot of work.
0: I imagine it was a lot of work, but at that point, especially stepping into star, I mean, for, for those that uh, don't know like, you, like yourself, maybe I am a huge, huge star Wars fan. I mean, if there, if there's one film on the planet that, that I love the most, it's, it's the star Wars franchise. So to me, just the hearing that you worked on episode six, Return of the Jedi, you know, the six year old in me is squealing like a like a schoolgirl right now. You know, um, at this point, when you jumped into uh, jumped onto Jedi, you know how huge a Star Wars film is, uh, you, especially coming off the back of Empire Strikes Back and and the big the big reveal of Darth Vader and everything, the, the, the buzz for this film was huge. And of course I've seen documentaries on, on filming a of return of to Jedi where they had to go under the assumed, uh, the, the assumed process name of blue harvest horror beyond imagination, just to keep people from uh, uh, gouging prices on Lucasfilm to, to, to make the movie with, they found out it was the next star Wars film. How much of a buzz was it for you? I mean, again, it's hard to say, as, you know, from the fact that you came off of a, a bunch of Spiel, Spielberg films that were blockbusters, but to, to walk into something that was already building itself into infamy like Star Wars.
1: I was really excited about getting offered to go on Revenge of the De- Jedi is what we called it. And right. it was known that way all the way through the filming. Um, the horror beyond imagination came a little later when they started making the t-shirts and stuff. But we always said we're on blue harvest as opposed to we're on star Wars. Why would we go out and rent compressors and air arrows or welders or whatever we needed. Um, and it just kept things a lower profile than people in the locals saying, Hey, they're making a new star Wars movie in town. You don't keep that secret very long. People really, you know, they're not dumb and they know there's a big movie going on and i was thrilled to be a part of it even though i hadn't worked on one and two i i joined in and i felt part of the family that was really great people and we had great crew from england that came over and learned a lot from them and um just the whole lucas family were just great people to work with and they had their act together and you turn around, next thing you know, you see all these stormtroopers. And you look over here, and all the Ewoks are over here. And, and they've got the big monster scout walker in the background against all these big trees. It was just great. There was a lot of people on it, and it was just nice to work with all of them.
0: How realistic did the props that you made throughout your career, maybe even especially later on, but, uh, but especially in the beginning, I always get this impression like when I when I watch a behind the scenes footage or something, especially something like a sci fi or a horror, uh, for example, where you see the practical effect of, say, for for the sake of argument, like a mask or, or or a disembodied head. And without the film, without the lighting, without the 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 the, the context, it looks like, you know, a rubber head. It doesn't look like something that should scare you or, or creep you out. How many times in 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 films where you like, for example, the Scout Walker, you know it's it's wood and and foam and and whatever it is that you use to to build it. So to you, it looked like that. But then when you sit in the theater and see it for the first time, it's like, wow, I did that. How, how many times did you have that type of sensation? Well, one
1: of the biggest sensations that we did goes back to jaws i was working at joe al's house the production designer making some money while we waited for the next big show that i could go on and steven called and said he wanted to do a couple extra shots and one of it was when the shark hits the boat and hits the side of it and it starts to leak and we built a hull in joe's driveway all under the table and we used a hose and a sledgehammer, and camera guys came up and took some quick shots of that. And then, talking about the sculpted head, they wanted to do a shot where Ben Gardner's head comes through the hole in the boat when Richard Dreyfuss, Hooper, goes down and finds the, the tooth on the boat. And so we put it together. We made the hull and matched the hole that was in the boat that was in the back lot of Universal and we actually filmed that in Verna Field's Swimming Pool who was the editor on Jaws and she had a little bungalow in the back where she did the work and I helped get all the gear together and we got a dummy and Dell Armstrong the makeup man came and we put the head on the dummy and we just got it, whittled it in the window of the hole when Frank Sparks the stunt coordinator came along and tried to grab the the tooth and rocking the boat with my back and pushing the head through. It was homemade fun and Stephen was shooting take after take after take. I think he did the 31 takes if I remember and he printed number 29 and it was the last shot of the movie. He already had come from the answer print and said yes and here he and Verna are still putting pieces together on the film. So it, it was just great. Um, To answer your question about when you work with things in the shop, the custom props, it's a wonderful experience when somebody comes along and says, okay, we're going to do something like this. And it's all brand new to you and the method of construction or when you start to break away windows and doors uh, make robots, uh, anything and everything. It's just a wild factory of craziness and you're there helping out making things.
0: I def, By the way, first off, like I gotta uh, preface the, uh, the the Ben Gardner head. Thank you very much for years and nightmares. <laughs> that was the scariest uh, shot in the whole entire film for for me as a, as a kid. And to this day, it still kind of gets me the heebie jeebies. Um, the question I definitely got to ask is: Throughout the years, you've done so many different films. You've worked on so many different genres of of, of, of movies, especially in the special effects department. You've worked on everything as, as big and, and and dramatic as as you know, like a, a ATST Walker or in Star Wars. Very minute effects on on shows like you know, Two and a Half Men. What was what was your favorite genre to work in? Where where did you really feel like you were flexing your most creative muscle?
1: I always like the features. I always like it when I landed a big show. The first big one I did was called The Last Starfighter. I was
0: love that movie. It was so
1: it was so big, so over my head. It was baptism by fire. I had to learn how to figure things out as I went along and quickly and uh, get through it. Um, It was kind of experimental when they were going to do all the miniatures with the computer. It was, nobody knows where we're going with this. And then uh, Gene built the star car. And when that came to the set, everybody wanted it to do something more than was part of his process. They wanted lights inside and they wanted to smoke and they wanted to go fast. And so I realized that when I got offered Back to the Future and read that script, and it had a car that was obviously the star of the movie, if I might say, that if I had to take care of that on the set when I hadn't built it, and I didn't know what it was made of from, where the switches went, everything about it, then I could get in trouble trying to make it work and not know how. So I said, I'd like to build the car, and I'd like to be that as part of my deal, because if I can't do the car, I really don't feel comfortable doing the rest of the movie. And then they agreed on that. And so now we're building one of the most iconic movie props in the world, along with a multitude of effects on the show that a lot of people don't even pay attention to, because the story is so great, what Bob and Bob did. People just follow along and watch Marty do his stuff, and you know, it's, uh, you you learn, and then you earn, and it just keeps on going.
0: It it, it begs the question, uh, just off of what you said, like uh, when you built the car, you had to know what switch did what and w- to get went where. How how involved were you where where you were uh, helping uh, Christopher Lloyd be able to explain some of the things that were spo- that were supposed to be going on in the in the DeLorean when you hit the time switch and the flux capacitor and some of the, some of the technical babble jargon that, that Christopher Lloyd spits out as, as uh, doc Brown, how much of it was you, something that you had described to them? It's like, well, when I built this, it's designed to be like, if you turn this and you click this and this happens and, and help develop the dialogue for it, or was it the opposite way around? Like uh, the storyboards and everything said, this is how this and this and this functions. And you made it practical.
1: Well, from the beginning, we never had a blueprint. We had sketches, just some sketches from Ron Cobb and Andy Prober. It should look something like this. And that led to us realizing it was extremely busy. There was going to be a lot, lot of pieces put on this. We had Mike Chaffe from the art department as a coordinator to help, in, you know, stylize some of the design of the pieces. But we had a 10 to 20 man crew. We had a very big electronics group with Bill Klinger who came in and did all the circuitry for all those lights and pieces. And and then when it's done, the big the big audition was Stephen wants to see the car on the set. Okay, let's go and see how it is. Uh, there's a picture on one of my web pages where I'm in the car and I'm pressing the buttons and I'm showing it to Stephen and he would ask questions. Okay, well what about this story point? What about when we have to do this? And Bob Z and Bob G were right there following along with my audition, and apparently it passed muster, and we went on to make the movie shortly thereafter. And then Chris, you know, Chris is a, an actor, but he's a consummate professional in everything that we did. And he understood this button's got to be pressed to tell this story to make the car go fast. And you know, and then when Michael came on board, he was great. He played catch-up in a hurry. He said, okay, this one, how about this one? And, and, the, and he was so fast, it wasn't like we had to teach him anything. He got it. He got the He was going to be part of this car, and he's going to be driving it, and his elbow has to hit here. He didn't like the fact that he had to shift, and he kept wrecking his arm into the electronics box. But <laughs> that was part of the story where he accidentally turns the car off. So both of them were great with all the electronics. They knew that they were part of this little carnival, and they had to know what had to be pressed and pushed. And in the meantime, we had people outside the car running the cables and pressing the lights and turning them on and off and changing the numbers. And it was a, it was a quite a process.
0: Whose idea was it? I, I've got to ask. Whose idea was it to make the time machine a DeLorean? And was that the original concept for the car to begin with, or was it something that? Kind of fell together when piecing together the the look of the vehicle
1: when I came on the project the script had the car in it they had moved away from the ball of plasma and the refrigerator container and decided that it'd be on the back of a pickup truck and they could take it to a nuclear test area for energy and things like that but it, it boiled down to the idea that the, the time machine had to be a vehicle of some kind so it could travel. To help their story. And they wanted to have a car that looked kind of spacey, so when it crashes into the barn, the farmer and family think that it's spacemen from Mars and have some kind of look of a car that might help that story point. And there was a call for the idea of a Mercedes Gullwing, they cost a lot of money, or a DeLorean that's kind of nice and stainless and the Gullwing doors. And they're cheap now just because of the way the market was at that moment in time. Right. And as soon as they said, okay, we decide, let's do it with a DeLorean. boom, 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 Just like they were in the time machines. They were in my shop parking lot the next day. All three of them, because we built three for the first movie. Right. And we just started, okay, let's decipher these sketches and
0: make it shine. Well, now I definitely want to jump forward. I mean, I'm having fun and, and a blast digging through uh, digging through history here. But, I mean, you're still at it to this day, if I'm not mistaken, correct, uh, film-wise? Uh, special,
1: film-wise, uh-huh. film-wise I, I worked for about 36 years, as that being fairly strictly what I did. I stepped away and managed the theme park at Universal Orlando for all the special effects and the pyrotechnics. They did aerials every night. And I went down there and I got involved in the park for a while. Wasn't my calling, um, not my kind of of meat and potatoes. So I came back and I continued to work uh, in Hollywood on different shows. One of the things that I enjoyed very much were the sitcoms, the sitcoms, the, the instant gratification technique because you have a live audience and so the actors get laughed by their lines right away and right. the only other person that really can get a laugh is the effects man when the girl says mom has dad fixed the garbage disposal yeah go ahead honey one two three and splush, and you, you know you're gonna get the laugh and I enjoyed that I enjoyed that theatrical arena um, and it was quick pace. The studio comes in, looks over the show, yes, no, maybe, but the change is very fast, just like the wardrobe of the actors or something. Um, and it was a good game. I did a lot of work on the sitcoms at CBS studios in Radford. So um, that was another enjoyable part of it. What happened after that, when business got slow, I decided to help the special effects supervisors get better deals for their shows because they just weren't making enough money to make things worthwhile and right. i became an agent and then that worked through all of the below the line and i worked all the way up to camera sound wardrobe this and that and then i started doing writers directors and producers and my forte was helping the writers finish their scripts i've had a wonderful career of seeing stories get manifested on a set i can read the lines while i'm playing with my smoke machine and the actor emoting them I could see the camera moves and the setups and I learned storytelling right from the beginning, from the first script I got offered to read. And when it came time to help the writers along with, you know, going to pitch fest and going to some writing
0: classes and things like that,
1: I really learned that crap. And now I help writers finish their scripts every day.
0: And essentially that's, uh, that's the one of the functionalities of, of film tricks. Uh, let's let's talk about your company, Film Tricks.
1: Uh, I thought that was a good name. You know, it was like movie and magic, and that was the idea in the beginning. And um, right. you know, after we got the shop to make the DeLoreans, I got called from all the commercial houses because they're doing car commercials during the late eighties and early nineties. I did a lot of those, and I just kept that name. So when I started the agency, I had that had some history that I could go by and use that to start the company.
0: That's excellent. There's two questions left that I that I can pop into my head here. Um, the the first and foremost question, with all the things that you've done throughout the years, looking back on this now, can get does it seem like it's somebody else's life? Like not just not just the initial stuff that you've done, but like you were saying with the car commercials, like you do Back to the Future, and then all of a sudden people want you to create. The Ford Delorean, if you will, for for a commercial or whatever. Just the longevity of the work that you've done, that it's still culturally, pop culture wise, culturally relevant today. Is how how does that feel to know that a lot of what you've done is completely timeless?
1: Like we well, remember when we had finished Back to the Future and came out, and was pretty popular. I got called right away to do a commercial with a car that gets lowered out of a cage, like it's a big tiger or something that lands on the dock with some workmen. And when it gets free, it takes off and they wanted the trails of fire to be behind the car. Um, You know, there's all kinds of things that, that people relied on for different ideas. And I had people come to the shop and they said, well, can we see the fire trails? We might use that. That was kind of like a popular gag at the time, um, and they still use it. Um, So uh, once you learn how to work with the producers and the talent and the movie makers, regardless of the medium, whether it's commercials or I did still shoots, uh, the sitcoms, the television shows, it didn't matter. As long as I thought that it was going to be a good deal, nice people, I'd get some money, And could I build the gag that they're talking about? I took it on. And when we had the shop, I was just so proud of the crew that I had, because we could make anything. It's like, do you have a six-foot-tall Statue of Liberty that's purple? When do you need it? Wednesday. Sure, we got one. And then I'd hang up, and let's get the foam in here. Let's get the sculptor. Let's start working at it. And boom, bomb, boom, bomb. And uh, we just had a great time making all kinds of things that would come along. We made a peanut butter. Refrigerator for a peanut commercial, uh, just endless, uh, multitude of cars, I can say that we did. Um, and uh, done well. And then I directed, we directed five spots for Mattel right after Back to the Future and used some of the crew, uh, Dean Cundy and uh, David McGifford. And we continued on working together because we all gelled from Back to the Future.
0: Now, the final question I have here is uh, looking back, 45 plus years in a career uh that that as as i said i can't use any other word other than legendary uh just for the things that you've done the 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 effects that you've put together in some of the most memorable films on on planet earth people who are listening to this podcast right now may have dreams of being effects artists or 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 set designers or or you know, uh, the like, maybe not wanting to be in front of the camera, but help make the magic behind the scenes. What advice would you give them? If you could impart any part of your knowledge from your 45 plus year career to help them start in in their lives, what, what would be the first thing you would tell them?
1: Yeah. They were interested in getting into special effects or making movie magic on the screen. I would advise them to go to school and study the visual effects side. Obviously, when the computer generation came along, the whole shift of the movie making changed. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't so good, sometimes it was done too much. You, you hear people say, oh, it always looks funny or whatever. Well, they've got it down to a science. And if you wanna get involved in that, um, it's a wonderful world to be in i i started this other path and then a lot of our work went away to the computer and then they realized well it takes two to make a movie and they combined our big special effects with their big movie making um you know michael bay's a big proponent of doing it real and some of those marriages seem to be some of the best look on the film um so that's what i would i would suggest gravitate towards the visual effects side and the other thing i'd tell them is to Make friends with everybody that you meet that's even remotely associated with showbiz. You don't know who they are, so don't judge them, but just put it out there that you're, you're interested in doing this. You'll never know where the phone call is going to come from. It'd be a guy you met at a party, or he just happened to be eating in a diner, or the Uber driver, or something like that. And the next thing you know, oh, oh. And there's a connection and some magic happens. So don't be afraid to put yourself out there for what you really feel you want to do. And you'd be surprised where the leads
0: come from. That's absolutely great advice. Uh, Mr. Pike, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to Breaking the Fourth Wall. Before we go, if you if there's anybody out there on uh, listening right now who may have additional questions or whatever, I would uh, direct them uh, obviously give you the floor to be able to tell them where they could reach you but I would direct them to uh, filmtricks.com that is your website correct
1: um, it's filmtricks at mac.com um, I'm on, on Facebook you can find me there with, I'm very available I don't hide if you have questions send me an email if you're looking for an autograph picture send me an email If you'd like to know about your script and how you can get serious about making it work and making it as a writer, by all means, send me an email, and I'd be happy to answer you.
0: Excellent. And, of course, guys, here at... uh... Realm of the Miss Entertainment, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with me on Breaking the Fourth Wall. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did in any capacity, hit that thumbs up button, like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts of Realm of the Miss Entertainment. And if you prefer your podcast in audio-only format, just check out Realm of the Miss Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. Again, Mr. Pike, this has been an absolute pleasure and I will probably be pestering you for an autograph. I won't lie. <laughs> but other than that, this Chris, is-
1: thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. It was great. The questions were fabulous. I hope the fans learned a thing or two that they didn't know. That's always the best part for me because uh, I, I love the fact that they're curious and, you know it, it just added up it was one show and then another show and another show and it's like you take the step after the step after the step your journey will be completed sometime and that's what happened just added up
0: well, i will definitely i will definitely extend this one here i don't think one episode is enough with you uh, mr pike because of your career i would definitely love whenever you have the opportunity to have you back on and continue the conversation but either way thank you very much for coming on and guys i will catch you on the next breaking the fourth wall. Have a good night, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the Mist. and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.